Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Carl Morrison, Advanced Certified Paralegal and your host of the Paralegal Voice. And boy, do we have a show for you guys today. A hot topic that is very relevant right now. And of course, we have been living in the past nine months now of a pandemic. I don't need to tell you guys that. If you've been a listener, at least for the last year, you've, you've heard several of the uh, episodes have been kind of slanted towards pandemic-related stuff. You know, we've covered things from working from home and employment law and the impact, you know, COVID-19 has on employment law matters and social media law, things of that nature. What's really amazing when you stop and look at it in those short, you know, nine months, it seems like it's forever ago, right? But if you look at it, scientists have been able to create a vaccine, which is just, you know, monumental. And in my eyes, nothing less than a miracle. But of course, with any vaccine that we have, you know, comes the potential for potential uh, adverse reactions. And I got to thinking recently, I was like, you know, what a great topic uh, and quite relevant, of course, to talk about, you know, from the legal standpoint, what does it mean to suffer an adverse reaction to a vaccine and to any uh, vaccine, not just specifically uh, the COVID-19 vaccine, but any vaccine. And what are an individual's rights under the law as it relates to, you know, pursuing a claim against a manufacturer, so on and so forth. So I thought, you know, there's really no better person to discuss this particular topic of vaccine litigation then my guest today, Drew Downing. Thank you, Drew, for joining me today on the show. I'm so thrilled to have you on here and talk about this hot topic. Yeah. Hi, Carl. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I know the listeners will enjoy what we're going to talk about. And I've known Drew for many, many years and worked uh, for Drew Eon, it seems like eons ago, Drew, but it also seems like it was just the other day. But um, I can tell you without hesitation, Drew is really the preeminent lawyer when it comes to vaccine litigation. And with that, I'm just going to jump right off into it, Drew. So if you could, for the listeners, if you could explain sort of at the 30,000 foot level, when we talk about vaccine litigation, what are we talking about in general? Yeah, well, so um, it, it is a, a timely topic given the, the fact that we're in, in the middle or hopefully coming to the end of a pandemic from uh, last March until, until today. There's been a couple of other pandemics, and that's a good place to start. In the late 70s, we experienced one due to swine flu. It was a variation of influenza virus, and we, you know, we went through a world pandemic similar to what we're experiencing now. A vaccine was created, multiple vaccines were created at that point in time to try and combat the swine flu. Unfortunately, as will happen with any vaccine or any medical product for that matter, there were some side effects and that particular vaccine caused a particular type of peripheral neuropathy that was pretty severe. There was a lot of litigation that ensued between victims and the drug manufacturers so much so, and they begin to be getting hit with product liability verdicts, 
but it was so pronounced that all four drug manufacturers in the United States decided to pull out, meaning there was instantly a price gouge of vaccines. They went up as much as 300% in price and a shortage of you know, very important childhood vaccinations, measles, diphtheria, tetanus, and so forth. So Congress stepped in in the mid-80s, and in 1986, they passed what is called, what is called uh, the Vaccine Act, which created a mechanism for not only protecting the drug manufacturers from liability, but creating a compensation system designed to compensate victims. So basically, since 1988, when, the, uh, when the, the program came online, if you're injured by a covered vaccine in the United States, your exclusive remedy is to file a case in the Court of Federal Claims in Washington, D.C. against the United States government for compensation. And they, you know, they turn into typical product liability lawsuits where you're litigating whether vaccination caused the harm, experts testify. And if you're successful, there are three categories of damages that the program will pay. They'll pay pain and suffering. They'll compensate the victim for out-of-pocket medical expenses. And uh, if you're forced to miss time from work, you get uh, reimbursed for loss of earnings. And they also pay for attorneys to be involved. So there's, there's no contingency fee awards out of these recoveries. It's a separate payment from the vaccine program to the lawyer for representing the victim in the program. Because I've I, I worked with Drew many years ago when we Drew sort of and I I'll let Drew talk more about it too. But branching into this niche area of law, learning about the the Vaccine Act of '86 and learning about the Vaccine Court Program, you you realize that this is an opportunity to assist individuals. You know, be able to receive you know compensation for those that did suffer you know severe adverse reactions. Am I right, Drew? Well, you're, you're right 100%. Carl, you experienced it with me. You know, many times we are the first people who have actually listened to them about their injuries being potentially vaccine-related. You know, counseling them at the outset is, is very important about the process, but, you know, it's, it's a, you're right. I mean, you, you, these are victims that are faced with, a, unfortunately, right now there's the physician world is somewhat hesitant to attribute causation of an injury to a vaccination. And so uh, you, you really do have to step into that role as, as advocate, perhaps more so in these cases, even than, than some of the other ones that, that you and I have litigated before. And so let's, let's step into that a little more and kind of break it down a, a bit. You know, as a practicing lawyer, focusing in on assisting individuals, you know, proceed with vaccine litigation and the vaccine court program, you know, what are some of those first steps you take to help the client? Well, I, I think that what you find is uh, this type of litigation, as I said, I mean, these are personal injury, complex product liability type of cases. But in these cases, the medical records are so important. They're important in every product liability case, but you know, a lot of these injuries are severe. The medical files are, as you recall, are, you know, <laughs> tens of thousands of pages long, and they're hard to wrestle with. You know, the first steps 
really are, are marshalling a complete medical file, breaking it down, building medical chronologies, just to identify the, the type and nature of the injury uh, and what the potential causes for that type of injury might be, even before you get to the step of linking vaccination to the, the injury. And in, in this regard, and with the relevance to our, our talk today, I mean, that's, that's the legal assistance role. In a lot of these cases, uh, it doing all of that heavy lifting up front, just so that I get to the point where I can figure out what we're dealing with. You're exactly right. As a paralegal and any paralegal that's listening to and have listened to podcasts and been practicing for a while, we are the backbone when it comes to, you know, marshalling the the evidence, in this case, medical records. And, you know, you touched on something that it hit me just now. It's like, you know, you're really when you get those medical records and you're analyzing and looking at them, you're filtering out the what I call the noise. It's the stuff that's really not related to you know, the adverse reactions. You're looking at this, you know, within the time frame once the vaccine's been administered to seeing how, you know, certain health uh, conditions were deteriorating over time, so on and so forth. So, yeah, the paral- we paralegals, that's our, <laughs> our big thing is to help you guys, you know, be able to marshal and understand what is the medical record story being told. Well, and, and, and if you, you know, I always say if I had a dollar for every, you know, medical chart that was 100% correct <laughs> and, and, you know, there weren't mistakes and, and things that were confusing all the issues, I'd have about a dollar. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, it's equally important that, um, you know, when that preliminary review takes place, and like I said, the medical chronologies are, are really valuable because once you break that down... And, and uh, for everyone listening, Carl Morrison makes the most gorgeous medical chronology <laughs> spreadsheets you've ever seen. Oh, uh, but, uh, you know, that, that allows me to then, you know, be able to see where we're, where we're headed. Does the timing fit? What are we dealing with? What are the red flags or alternative explanations and so forth? So you're right. It, it really is probably one of the most pivotal pieces. So once you get and have met with the client and you've, you've garnered, you know, the medical record and done a chronology and kind of figured out, okay, yeah, we're going to be able to proceed through the vaccine court. You talked about, you know, from a product's liability and, you know, working outside of the vaccine program, court program, you have rules and procedures and things of that nature. So does the vaccine court have its own set of special rules, guidelines, you know, do they follow the typical rules of civil procedure? How does the, the procedural aspect of, of going through the court program work? It's a little bit of both. Um, the vaccine program does have its own rules, you know, guidelines for practice in the court. What's not covered in those is governed by the federal rules of civil procedure. Uh, but the, the rules are relaxed. You know, evidentiary rules, things of, of that nature, they're followed, but they're not strictly enforced. And, and part of that is, you know, the, the government in these cases really serves as the role of gatekeeper rather than adversary. They're trying to make sure that only true vaccine injuries get compensated. So while that doesn't mean that these cases don't get adversarial, which uh, rest assured they do, <laughs> but the end goal, 
uh, of all involved is basically to try and establish what happened. If it is reasonable to think that it's connected to vaccination and, you know, does this person deserve compensation? And if so, how much? So I, I think, you know, the answer to your question is really it's a bit of a hybrid that you you sort of learn as you practice in the program. You know, I'm not standing up every time uh, objecting to my my opposing counsel's questions based on hearsay and things of that nature, because most of the time we're all trying to get to the same point. Right. The the court program is not there to be, you know, a stop where you're you're trying not to help the client. It's actually there to help actually what you just said for them to be able to get and receive compensation for those that are truly injured as a result of an adverse event to a vaccine. And speaking of the vaccines themselves, you know, is it important for you and the paralegals that work for you, I know it was for me, to know and understand the different types of vaccines, you know, how they work, how they're administered, you know, the different types of reported reactions to certain uh, vaccines. And if you think it is, why is it important to know the ins and outs of the vaccines? Well, I think it's incredibly important. And, and, and you know, a, a, as you'll recall, I mean, that's just something you learn. It's trial by fire. Uh, you learn that from experience. But a lot of vaccines will leave a footprint, you know, meaning if the injury is actually due to vaccination, there are things we can look for in blood work. There's things we can look for in spinal fluid and diagnostic testing. And, you know, that is invaluable, not only to figure out the case up front, but you can, you can figure out what you're missing. Meaning, you know, if, if you've got a, a flu shot case where it resulted in Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a peripheral neuropathy, you know your diagnostic testing is going to involve, you know, nerve conduction studies. There was probably a spinal tap. And if there was a spinal tap, if there's elevated protein in the spinal fluid, you've got to lay down winner of a hand from the vaccine's perspective. You know, none of us are born with that knowledge on, on how those cases work, but understanding that and learning it and, and, and having that level of expertise is really invaluable. You know, I've had the same two legal assistants for 10 years now. And they know as much about how vaccines work as I do and anyone else. So it is a it's a luxury that I have that that makes my job a whole lot easier. I wish I had a dollar for every time I reviewed, you know, peer peer reviewed journal articles on uh, vaccine reactions when I was working for you, Drew, because I would probably not be quite rich, but I'd have a nice little nest egg built up. So let's take a short commercial break. So listeners, don't turn that dial. We'll be right back. NALA members receive exclusive content, such as the Paralegal Utilization and Compensation Survey Report, access to a members-only collaboration site, discounts on office products and car rental, access and preferred placement on a web platform for paralegal contract jobs, and access to the member-only career center. NALA members also receive discounted education and products, Join NALA today and become a part of our community. Learn more at NALA.org. This episode of The Paralegal Voice is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for electronic filing in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. 
CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience so you can spend more time helping clients. Because they know that work sometimes happens after hours, CourtFiling.net offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit CourtFiling.net to receive 30 days of unlimited free electronic filings and see how you too can e-file court documents with ease. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. So Drew and I have known each other for, what, nearly 15, uh, 20 18? Plus, 20, yeah, 20, yeah, 20 years. years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been forever. So Drew knows I'm a big science nerd. Those that don't know me, I, I worked with Drew. It's, God, that's probably been 10 years, 10 plus years ago that I worked with Drew assisting clients proceed through the Court of Federal Claims. And I thoroughly enjoyed that line of work. It was phenomenal. So I know Drew and I, you and I, we could talk about vaccine litigation for hours. But unfortunately, I only have a short amount of time to cover this with you. So <laughs> let me ask you this, Drew. If a paralegal was to start working for a lawyer that decided to branch into vaccine litigation in this very niche area of law, what would you say are some good words of advice that you would recommend to that person to helping them succeed in supporting their lawyer? What do you look for in your paralegals? After me, what were you looking for in your paralegals to help with the vaccine litigation? Yeah, well, and I, I think this is, you know, staying on topic of what we've been talking about so far with regards to the nature of these files. At the end of the day, I'm looking for a paralegal that, you know, has a good work, work ethic and is extremely conscientious about their practice. Because, you know, you can, you can learn the science, you can learn the the nature of, of, of these types of injuries. But again, the complexity of these files is such that they have to be managed. All of my files have to be managed. You know, when before we even can file a case, we have to have three years back prior to the vaccine of historical medical records. You know, we have to get all of the medical records associated with the injury, and then we have to continually update the medical file. You know, most of these cases, when you're looking at, you know, these, these severe type of injuries, like I said, it's tens of thousands of pages long and without some serious level of organization and vigilance in, in this, this practice, you could lose the case before you ever got to the merits. And, you know, the government, you know, they have the division of vaccine compensation who is staffed with doctors and they're sort of reviewing these files at the same time, looking through all that historical medical, looking at everything. And, you know, they'll find what, what I miss for sure. So I don't like to miss things. But, you know, I, I found, like I said, you can learn the medicine, but having the drive to keep these files together and moving is, is a, a rare gift. And it, it really is a, a, a legal assistant skill set that, you know, is, is really necessary if you're going to be successful in, in, in this type of practice. And you hit the, the nail on the head, and it's something that I have taught paralegal students and I talk about on the show, is that paralegals, legal assistants, we are project managers. If you really want to get down to it, while we are helping, you know, the client, our supervising attorney proceed through the whatever court we're in, 
project management is a huge part of it and is a vital skill in order to be a successful paralegal. And you're exactly right. Having worked for you doing vaccine litigation, you have to be A plus on, you know, managing this because, you know, you don't follow up on an outstanding record, you know, a medical provider. You don't chase down that extra, you know, peer review journal article, you're going to miss out and potentially cause your client not to be able to proceed through the court. I like to tell the story, Drew, and you probably remember this. You presented at a conference, it's been several years ago, and you called me out as I was in the session with you, and you used to call me your bloodhound because you could set me off Give me a, you know, particular thing to to chase down and I'm going to root it out. And if it if I can't find it, it doesn't exist. And so I, I wear that to this day as a badge of honor being called your bloodhound. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it was aptly named. But as you said, Carl, I mean, it's, it's something that is, is required. In, in this type of practice, I love the I love the denomination as project manager because that's exactly what a legal assistant is, particularly on these types of cases. So there's been a lot of debates and discussions, of course, in social media and on the news, you know, about the pros and cons of vaccines. You have those that are the anti-vaxxers and why someone shouldn't get a vaccine. And we're not going to get into the political aspect of that on the show, but, you know, with the, the most recent lightning speed creation of this COVID-19 vaccine that we have going on now, you know, that debate rages on. And I don't know if that debate's ever going to go away. And we could probably have a show just on that, the debating of the pros and cons. But um, like I said, I don't want to get into the political aspect of it. But with any vac- new vaccine that's created, say someone is administered that particular new vaccine and has a, 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 an adverse reaction to it. Does an individual proceed through the vaccine court in a normal process, like a normal established vaccine, or are brand new vaccines barred from proceeding through the court? How does that work? You know, are there avenues for a claimant to seek resolution from a new vaccine that they suffer an adverse reaction from? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So with the vaccine injury program, the program that I practice in, there is a, a a statutory vaccine injury table that lists every covered vaccine that is uh, a compensable vaccine in the vaccine injury program. Those include all the childhood mandatory vaccines, influenza is on there, uh, human papillomavirus vaccine is on there. But it literally takes an act of Congress to get a vaccine covered in my program. And the reason for that is the the funding for the vaccine program is a 75 cent excise tax is levied on every vaccine given in the United States. Uh, The manufacturers pay that tax into the Vaccine Injury Trust Fund and the fund pays claims out uh, out of that fund. So without the act of Congress, in, in uh, instituting the excise tax, a vaccine is not covered in my program. COVID-19 is a perfect example. When they brought it to market, they could have done the excise tax, but they didn't. What they did instead was they added it to a secondary program, which is called the Countermeasures 
Injury Compensation Program. And that program covers vaccinations for smallpox, anthrax, other sort of countermeasure type of of remedies. And for right now, Congress has put the COVID-19 vaccine in, in as a countermeasure rather than adding it to my program. In the countermeasures program, you can get your medical covered, but there's no pain and suffering. You can't have an attorney represent you, and you basically don't even get your day in court. Uh, you, you simply submit your medical records and, and documentation, and then this mystery panel uh, decides whether you get some compensation or not. But if it's not added to the countermeasures program or the vaccine program, my program, then there really is a lack of a remedy for a vaccine injury. And a perfect example of that is the shingles vaccine. The shingles vaccine is not covered in the vaccine injury program, and it's not covered in the countermeasures program. So if you're injured by the shingles vaccine, you're left with trying to sue the drug manufacturer, which is a a, a tough one to, to, to get to them. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out with COVID-19, you know, and it'll be interesting to see what the long-term play is as far as what we see in the way of adverse events. So we, we hope and pray that this particular vaccine has limited amount of adverse reactions and uh, that are detrimental to an individual and that we have a, a healthy community and country to move forward, of course. So, Drew, oh my gosh, we are running out of time, and I really want to talk more about this. <laughs> we shouldn't do a multi-part, you know, thing on this because <laughs> <laughs> you and I could truly, there's so many different avenues to vaccine litigation that we could really deep dive in. And so, not enough time to cover it all. So, I've got one more final question I would like to ask you. What do you see in the future of vaccine litigation? I know this is kind of a big, broad, pull out your crystal ball type of question. You know, what do you think the future holds for claimants and the the particular vaccine court system? You know, that there will continue to be vaccine litigation. You know, no vaccine is 100% safe. You know, these adverse events that, that we're talking about here, uh, these are rare. And, and I don't want any listener to think that you or I are anti-vaccination at all. I always, you know, when I when I lecture on the vaccine program, I always say, you know, look, my son is 22 years old. Uh, he's a senior at the University of Arizona, and he has gotten every one of his mandatory childhood vaccines, even with everything that I have seen over the past 25 years. But when they when they do occur. Uh, I think the vaccine program will continue to be around to take care of them. You know, the drug manufacturers cannot absorb the the potential liability of opening, uh, you know, this type of litigation back up to the district courts. You know, I'm hoping that there'll be some changes made to the program because it's gotten very litigious over the last 10 years. And it's a lot harder for victims to get compensation and the process takes you know, years to see it to uh, fruition. But um, I, I don't see it going away anytime soon. Unfortunately, I, I think that I've got some job security for a little <laughs> while longer. <laughs> well, and, you know, it, it's uh, 
the best program program that we have in our court system because, you know, different countries don't even have a very similar type of thing. And, you know, it happens, they get suffer adverse reaction and they, they have no recourse. So that's it's, right. It's the best that we have and it, you know, vaccines are here to to help the community, not hurt the community. And so uh, I truly appreciate all the hard work that you do. I've seen it firsthand, listeners, um, what Drew has done, families, children that have suffered. And Drew's a great lawyer above above and beyond uh, vaccine litigation, but he's great with the clients as well. So Drew, thank you for all that you do. And thank you for being a guest on my show. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, how would they contact you? Uh, yeah, and, and Carl, let me say thanks. It, it, it was a pleasure to to be with you today. I, I've uh, I've enjoyed catching up with you. Uh, it's been too long since uh, you and I were were able to chat. Um, exactly. You know, the easiest way would probably be to go to my website. It's uh, it's www.nationalvaccineinjurylawyer.com. All of my contact info is there. But more importantly, there's a lot of useful information about the program, the types of injuries, and and the process itself. It's a, it's a good tool if, if people want to check it out. Well, Drew, thank you so much. And of course, before I let you go, I don't ever let my guest go without me asking a fun question. So I'm going to ask you a tough, fun question. And <laughs> <laughs> if, you okay. can have, if you could have dinner with anyone famous, person in history, live or dead, who would it be and why? You know, um, for me, uh, I think it would be uh, Ronald Reagan. Interesting. And it doesn't have anything to do with political affiliation. I read his memoir years ago, and uh, there was a whole chapter in his memoir devoted to secret meetings that he would have in the early 80s with uh, Gorbachev. Uh, you know, at the, with the Soviet Union at the time. And, you know, we were in the Cold War on the brink of blowing each other up on a, a daily basis. And he told stories of the two most powerful men in the world would meet secretly by themselves without secret service, without, you know, translators and without, uh, you know, anyone else in the room over a scotch and find common ground between the two of them, you know, to keep the world from destroying itself. And I, I, uh, I would love to have more details about those conversations <laughs> and how that, how that evolved. Because, you know, I mean, you know me, I, I, I always think that sitting down across from your opposition and, and, and finding what you have in common is the way deals get done and the way problems get solved. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I would have loved to, to be able to get uh, information on first of all how he did that without everyone you know finding out and keeping it from doing it, but it, then just what did they talk about? I just would have loved to have, have have been a fly on the wall for that. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah, I would have never Drew. I would have never thought that would be the person that you would say. So um, that's great. I, I thank you so much. Thank you again, Drew, really, for being a guest on today's show. And I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you about this. Again, we may have to do another episode. What do you think? <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> you just let me know. Perfect. Well, Drew, thank you so much. Hang tight, everyone. We'll be right back after this break for station identification. Today's episode is brought to you by Legal Inc., 
Legal Inc. is empowering paralegals to embrace their inner legal rock star by automating the everyday tasks that hold them back. Through their free dashboard solution, paralegals can quickly and easily automate services like business formations, corporate filings, registered agent services, and more. Visit LegalInc.com to create a free account and check out LegalInc.com forward slash podcast for a chance to win Legal Rockstar swag. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry, connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Before we end today's show, we would like to thank our sponsor, NALA. NALA is a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education, voluntary certification, and professional development programs. NALA has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since our very first show. And courtfiling.net, e-file court documents with ease in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. To learn more, visit courtfiling.net to take advantage of a free 30-day trial. And serve now a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, who embrace technology and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. And finally, Legal Inc. Legal Inc. makes it easy for paralegals to digitally automate tasks like business formations, corporate filings, and registered agent services nationwide. Visit legalinc.com slash podcast today to create your free account. Well, we're at my favorite part of the show, um, listeners, the listener's voice. And this is your opportunity to send me your questions, your comments, your career celebrations, or anything paralegal, legal related. And I'm going to share it with everyone here on the show. And so feel free, email me at devotedtolaw@gmail.com. And share with me your paralegal joys. And today I got an email about right around the time of the holidays. And um, it comes from a newly minted paralegal, someone that had only been practicing for about five or six years. And um, this individual sent me this email. And they said, hello, I'm a new listener and have been catching up on your recordings. They're awesome. If you haven't covered it already, would you please discuss freelance paralegal someday? I've been a paralegal for six years, and it seems like a job well-suited to contract work, but don't know anything about it, and I'm curious what you think. Thanks, and have a nice holiday. Sincerely, potentially aspiring freelance paralegal. Well, thank you, aspiring freelance paralegal. I will tell you, that's actually a really great idea. And I went back because I was thinking, have I done a show on freelance paralegals before? And I thought I had, and I, I went back, checked the archives, and I don't see that I've done any shows about this topic, and I was like, well, shoot, we're missing something here, aren't we? So I will tell you a little bit from my knowledge and experiences. While I've never been a freelance paralegal, I have known and and continue to know paralegals that work in a freelance capacity. I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, there's some things really right off the bat that you really need to think about if you're going to consider transitioning into being a freelance paralegal. And I've had paralegal students ask me this, you know, well, I want to be a freelance right when I get, you know, graduate from a program. Well, I would say 
years and tears. That's what it takes. You can't really just necessarily jump right off from a program and start doing freelance. I think you need a little bit of experience under your belt before you transition into that type of role. But, you know, you need to think about certain things when you do want to make that transition. So think about what's the motivating factor. Are you just tired of the people that you work with? You just want to work by yourself? Or do you have children at home and um, or elderly parents or whatever the, the situation may be that time you need a more flexible schedule? Eight to five doesn't cut it. You need to have where you could work at till midnight or work on the weekend, so on and so forth. So think about what's the motivating factor in wanting to transition and being a freelance paralegal. Think about your workspace. Are you a single individual living in a one-bedroom apartment? Do you have, you know, adequate office space? What's my workspace like? Do I need to have filing cabinets, so on and so forth? Which, by the way, you shouldn't have a bunch of paper. Everything should be technology-driven. But how am I going to get clients? Think about how do you plan on identifying the lawyers and law firms that you want to work for? That's why another reason of having years experience, you've actually started building up working for certain attorneys, knowing the other lawyers in town, so on and so forth. Think about the ethical ramifications. I couldn't go a show without talking about ethics. So what are those ethical ramifications of you working from home? Are you, you know, set up in a way? Think about all those other little things that you don't normally think about on a day-to-day basis. Tax ramifications, healthcare issues, who's going to pay my insurance? you know, health insurance. Is my spouse going to now have to cover both of our health insurance wages? How am I, you know, going to survive based on the contract work that I do as a freelance? How do I even set up a business? You know, you know, do I set up an LLC? How do I set up a business in order to run a freelance? There's a lot of different things to think about, even right off the bat. And so while I'm not an expert in it, These are some things to think about if you're thinking about transitioning into it. But you know what? How about I get an expert on the show and let me talk to them about it and interview them on the ins and outs of being a freelance. So thank you, Aspiring Freelance Paralegal, for addressing that with me. So what do you guys think? Send me an email. Let me know what you think about having a freelance paralegal on the show. And with that, that's all the time we have for today on the Paralegal Voice. Um, If you have questions about today's show, about Drew Downing and and his practice in vaccine litigation or any other questions, of course, you know, email me at devotedtolaw at gmail.com. That's D-E-V-O-T-E-D, the number two, L-A-W at gmail.com. And stay tuned for more information and upcoming podcasts for exciting paralegal trends, news, and engaging and fun interviews from leading paralegals and other leading legal professionals. Thank you for listening to The Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Find Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or download, of course, Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. And reminding you that I'm here to enhance your passion and dedication to the paralegal profession and make your paralegal voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. 
None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.